Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third day of our special series, Crash or Boom, How to Profit from What's Coming. We're only a couple days into our campaign, and already we're seeing some divergent opinions. Raoul started things off saying the recession's already here, inflation's trending lower, and the Fed will ultimately be cutting rates, which he thinks will be bullish for tech and crypto. Go back and watch the entire video for the details, but that's broadly his thesis over the next year. On Tuesday, Andreas sat down with his former boss, Michael Sarve, who's much more negative. He believes a recession is still in the wings, but it's getting delayed. He worries high levels of fiscal spending have created sticky inflation, and he thinks it's way too early to price in rate cuts. That leaves U.S. stocks looking overvalued in his mind. Bonds will ultimately be a better bet, but not until you see uh, employment, much higher unemployment. Uh, so way too early for the bond call. So what is the outlook for U.S. economic growth, global growth, and inflation? Joining me to share their views, Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab and & Company, and David Rosenberg, founder and president of Rosenberg Research & Associates. Hello to both of you. Thanks so much for being here. Hi. Hi, Maggie. Thanks, Hi, David. Maggie. Great to be so, on. Uh, I, I'm And I'm so excited to talk to both of you because um, I think everyone's been kind of referring to it as running back and forth on the ship, trying to figure out what's going on, right? Soft landing, then recession, then hard landing. And it's just been, it, it, it's felt so volatile, especially looking at bonds. So Lizanne, let's sort of pull the lens back and start with you. What's your base case for the U.S. economy? So we've been using the the term rolling recession or rolling recessions for about a year and a half right now. And I get pushback sometimes. People say, oh, I hate that term. And that's fine. You can hate the term. But the, the reality around it is it's factual. When you think about the nature of the pandemic, particularly the, the stimulus era of the early part of the pandemic, when we saw this massive surge in demand fueled by stimulus that at that time was forced to be funneled into the goods side of the economy because none of us had any access to services. That's what launched the economy out of its very short-lived recession. It became the breeding ground of the inflation problem with which to some degree we're still dealing. But that then gave way to recessions in those areas, manufacturing, housing, housing-related, a lot of consumer-oriented goods. And you turned the inflation story on the good side into a disinflation story, in some cases deflation. We just have the more recent strength, the revenge spending on the services side, services a larger employer. That's, for the most part, kept the labor market afloat, although I think that there are cracks forming there. So to me, the recession versus soft landing debate 
um, is a little too simplistic. It misses the nuances. To me, best case scenario is we continue to see a roll through where you get stability and or recovery in areas that have already been hit, assuming services and or the labor market gets hit further from here, which I think is most likely the case. I still think recession, a declared, formally declared recession is more likely than not, but I think there's a more nuanced way to think about this unique cycle. Yeah, which which makes sense based on, I think, what anecdotally we're all seeing and feeling. David, what about you? How are you thinking about this? Well, I, I really don't think that um, there should be a debate between soft landing uh, and recession because uh, they are really two different parts of the business cycle. Uh, the soft landing is the transition or the bridge uh, from the previous business expansion to the contraction phase. Mm -hmm. And soft landings, which is what we're in right now and we've been in for the better part of the past year and change, uh, they can last several quarters. Uh, 1969, soft landing, 1979, 1981, 1989, uh, 2000, 2007. These are all years where people were saying, where's the recession already, where's the recession? Um, but it was that transition phase. And every recession followed a soft landing. Uh, you know, the economy is this, you know, $27 trillion beast uh, that doesn't fall off a cliff. It's not like the stock market uh, and it's not like the CRB index or even Bitcoin. Uh, the, the economy is a juggernaut. Um, so I think that it's almost a false debate. Um, we're in the soft landing. We've been in a soft landing. And what's more important is where are we going to be three, six, and 12 months from now? Uh, and I think that the soft landing, which is that transition phase, is that we would have made that transition. So look, my, my belief system is this. Um, I believe that the business cycle is a living organism and that it has not been repealed, not been repealed by the shills and Montebanks and promoters on Wall Street. The business cycle is alive and well. I believe that interest rates matter. And actually, I would say that for long duration assets and for the economy writ large, there is nothing more important uh, than interest rates. Uh, and I believe that there's policy lags. Uh, so for all the people saying that, you know, where's the recession and all the people that were calling for recession are dead wrong. By the way, the same people that were saying that in 2000, the same people saying that today, were saying it back in 2007 when I was at Mother Merrill, where's the recession? Well, the reality is that the typical lag between the first Fed rate hike and the recession is 22 months. It's not 22 hours, it's not 22 days, it's not 22 weeks, it's 22 months. So if this plays out as a normal cycle, the recession starts in the fourth quarter of this year, no later in the first quarter of next year, and all that's separating um, you know, the expansion phase of the cycle to the contraction phase is the bridge or the soft landing we're in right now. But the worst thing anybody can possibly do is to do what you did back in the first half of 07 and extrapolate the soft landing into the next stage of the business cycle, which is going to be a contraction. And I'll just say right now, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. This is not a medical diagnosis, okay? It's just the natural contours of the business cycle at play. And we could argue that the lags are longer this time because of the fiscal stimulus, but we all know that the fiscal stimulus or the lags from that are going to term out by the end of this quarter and what's left staring us in the face are going to be the lags from what the Fed has done over the course of the past year and a half. That is still yet to play out. Mm. David, so you, I know you were expecting, are, are you surprised 
at the length of this transition, let's call it a transition. Are you surprised at how long it's lasted? Because you were pretty bearish at the end of 22, beginning of 23, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. Are you surprised and how are you, what do you, what do you think is behind the fact that we've been in this transition or it sounds very similar to what Leanne, uh, Lizanne described as a rolling recession. Is it the fiscal policy and the difficulty in matching up that, countering the rate hikes? Well, it, it's a it's very difficult to perfectly time when the transition is going to take place. So look, uh, I was ex just as bearish in the opening months of 2007, okay? And uh, nobody at Merrill Lynch wanted to talk to me. Uh, and I was, I was, uh, my nickname was the skunk at the picnic and whoever wants to have lunch with the skunk, nobody. And I was, you could argue crazy early on that call. I was calling for a session in the beginning of 07. Recession started in December of 07. And because it's so complicated and there's revisions to the data, uh, that the NBR didn't make the official declaration till December of 2008, 12 months later. And the consensus of the economics community was still calling for a soft landing long after Bear Stearns was gobbled up uh, by JP Morgan. And the recession call by the consensus didn't take place until September of 08 when uh, Lehman and AIG and Merrill all went down for the count. What happened in 07, and the lags were stretched out then as well, um, was because we had the last vestiges of the housing boom and bubble still influencing household cash flows, even as the economy was slowing down. So, you know, back then, uh, the acronym on Main Street and Wall Street was MEW. Remember MEW, M-E-W, Mortgage Equity Withdrawal, Cash Out Refinancings. Uh, that kept the Energizer Bunny alive until the lags from what the Fed had already done. Uh, and remember, the Fed got started that cycle in the summer of 04 to show you just how long the lags can be. And that was a very strong antidote, the last vestiges of the housing boom. Um, but it ended in December of 07. Uh, the business cycle wasn't repealed, and you could argue that it was extended. And yes, I was surprised that it lasted that long. But the next thing you know, in 08, all people could remember was that I got the recession call right, because it's more important to get the big call right than actually try and pinpoint the month that it's going to happen. So this time around, you know, it hasn't been more exactly withdrawal or cash or refinancings. It's been the last messages of the fiscal stimulus and primarily the $2.2 trillion uh, Biden budget buster in March of 2021. That was the gift that kept on giving. But you see, where I might have gotten it wrong was history shows that when American consumers are confronted with cash transfers, they spend half and they save half. And this time around, practically every penny and to $2.2 trillion. That's a lot of money all at once. It can't be spent all at once. It wasn't spent all at once, but it was the gift that kept on giving right up until today. Uh, but the San Fran Fed, which I actually view as probably um, the best research among the Fed district banks, uh, not to play favorites, but their stuff is really good, found that um, the, um, uh, the, uh, the effect of the, uh, of the stimulus checks on spending expires at the end of this month. And of course, we have other things going on. The Employee Retention Act terms out, the student loan moratorium terms out. A lot of fiscal support is coming to an end, just as we sit here right now by the end of this month. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the consumer looks stripped bare of all this fiscal stimulus, but primarily the cash transfers, which, by the way, look, the you know, back in that period, 
we're just taking a look, for example, since pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, the normal personal savings rate was 9%. Today, it's three and a half. Mm. So if you believe in Bob Farrell's rule number one on mean reversion, what is it going to mean if the personal savings rate, which was drawn down to three and a half percent because people weren't spending traditional income the past couple of years, they're spending that positive shock from that $2.2 trillion cash transfer in the winter of 2021. So what happens arithmetically when the savings rate mean reverts to the pre-COVID norm into a cooling labor market? And how are we going to escape a consumer recession in that environment? So I'd say that I respect the, the view that we've had these rolling recessions. And it's very difficult arithmetically to get a recession in the U.S. without the U.S. consumer yeah. going into a downturn. And that hasn't happened yet. That's why there's been no official recession. The consumer has been hanging on. Yeah. But the job, my, my job and our job is not to talk about what's happened already and what happened in the past. The question is, what does it look like in the next 12 months? And I don't think that the consumer spending picture looks very pretty. And I think the guidance that we got from the retailers, you see, the problem with the Commerce Department numbers on retail sales is they tell us what's happened. They don't tell us any guidance. The retailers told us across the board that the outlook for the consumer in the next 12 months is not that robust at all. Quite the contrary. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Lizanne, I feel like um, so many of uh, your customers, I think, are, are retail or in the retail space. So I always feel like you have a really good pulse on this. When we're talking about the consumer, two things matter a lot, right? We know inflation has been a headline issue for them and the labor market. So let's unpack both of those. What, what are you expecting in terms of inflation as we sort of head you know, through the end of the year and into next year, because everything the Fed does is going to matter. You know, we had a CPI number out today, energy's feeding back into it. But even if you take out energy and food, core is still higher than the Fed would like it to be. What are you expecting as we move forward? So I, I, I would expect a continuation of, in general, disinflation. But there are a, a number of, I guess, caveats to that um, disinflation, not in a straight line. Um, we, we knew that we were not going to see the same kind of swift move down as we saw earlier in the summer, uh, if only because of the math associated with base effects. You know, you had the June numbers this year flattered by virtue of a nine handle on CPI in June of last year. So that's just simple math. And what you saw in a number like today is the obvious impact of higher oil prices, higher energy prices, gasoline prices on headline inflation, but the ripple effects, the feed through, even into areas that are embedded within core like airline fares. So I continue to think it's going to be a choppy move in this path toward disinflation. I also think that we are we are in a transition to a to an era, perhaps secular, 
that is not like the great moderation era. We had this, you know, call it 25-ish year period where you had this massive tailwind of almost perpetual disinflation, say for the pop that we got in 2008. And in turn, that sort of epic decline in interest rates, both on the short end and the long end, which goes further back than that, thanks to what Paul Volcker did. And I think a lot of what caused that era of great moderation, and I've been using the acronym GEL, G-E-L, was that the world had abundant and cheap access to goods, energy, and labor. In the case of goods, it had a lot to do with China's ascendancy into the world trading order and specifically into the WTO, um, the, the boom in US energy production, particularly shale and fracking, and then also related to China, but other parts of the emerging world, abundant and cheap access to, to labor. That meant that corporate profits became a record share of GDP, labor compensation became a lower share of GDP. We've now got pretty much everything moving in the opposite direction. We, and we actually we, have, I, we actually have a gra uh, a graphic for you. That yeah, I, I have some, our, I have some yeah, visuals associated if our, with um, that. Yeah. If, if you guys could pull that up while we continue to talk about this, because I think it, sh it, it really shows the differences that you're expecting as we sort of move into this. So as they try to pull that up, go ahead, keep, keep going. Yeah, about so it. So I, I've been, you know, the great moderation, I think that the term was, was coined by uh, Larry Summers and it sort of stuck and there's no definitive start point uh, to it, it really depends on what metric you're looking at, or 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 how you view the broader secular landscape. But um, I, the, really, the the thirty or so years that preceded the Great Moderation, call it the three decades starting in the mid 1960s, which I've been calling the temperamental era. I'm not a former Treasury Secretary, so it may not take off as a descriptor, and I don't know that that's what we're transitioning into. But it was an era not of perpetually high inflation, but more inflation volatility, a global economy that was a bit more subjected to supply shocks, less so to demand shocks. You had labor, obviously, with more power. Compensa labor compensation as a share of GDP was well higher than profits as a share of GDP. You had perpetually the entire time the rolling one-year correlation between bond yields and stock prices was negative because during that era when yields were going up, it was typically because inflation was picking back up again, not necessarily growth picking up to a significant degree. And that was negative for the equity market. Fast forward to the great moderation period, typically when yields were going up, it was not because inflation was a problem, it was because growth was picking up. That's sort of nirvana for equities, vice versa, in the opposite direction with, with yields. And I think that in particular may be a metric worth watching to gauge whether we're shifting into a different uh, secular era in addition to the labor compensation versus profits as a share of GDP. It's not without opportunities in terms of the, the investing landscape. It's just different than the probably the investing time frame that a lot of investors um, have. And I just think it's something we, we need to look out for. Uh, we're, we're not there in terms of definitively saying that's the case, but I don't think we're going back to something that resembles the great moderation. Yeah. And, and I see them flipping through the deck. Um, if we don't get it up, we'll, we'll, we'll link it to the interview um, because there's a great list that's side by side for the two, if you guys are looking for it. But um, 
just just one quick I'm, I want David's thoughts, but when you say different time frame, that's very important. We talk about this a lot um, with our community about understanding what your time frame is. So in that environment, Lizanne, is it a short do you have to have a shorter time frame? when you're thinking about things because there is more volatility or how are you thinking about that? Um, not necessarily. I, I think it's rarely the case that you benefit from shortening your time horizon. I think a longer time horizon in general makes sense, particularly if you're applying a dis disciplines around that and time horizons have gotten progressively shorter over time and there's more of a trading mindset. And it, by the way, has not been to the benefit of returns. I just think some of the implications if we're we're shifting to a different backdrop are more around making sure you understand the benefit of factor focus, investing based on characteristics or factors as opposed to more of the the big picture, you know, outperform underperform on sectors or broader asset classes. I think there's likely to be greater equity dispersion. Um, you know, with the return of the risk-free rate and actually price discovery, you know, back <laughs> in vogue relative to the 0% interest rate environment, that's a reconnection of fundamentals to uh, prices. And I think that that puts active management maybe on a more le level playing field with, with passive management. So that's the way I think about the implications of this possible change. So, David, when how are you thinking? We we have in our discussions in the series, we've had people talking about this move to a multipolar world, um, energy supply as an issue that's going to be something that we have to think about when it comes to inflation, changing supply chains, reshoring, fiscal spending. That perhaps now that people have a taste of it, as we enter election year, certainly we're entering one in the U.S may not disappear in the way you may have this, this uh, where it used to be all monetary and moved to fiscal. All of these issues have come up. How are you thinking about that based on what Lizanne was just describing? Well, uh, you know, lot, lots to unpack there. Uh, let me uh, touch on the last thing you mentioned since uh, <laughs> that's what I remember uh, on fiscal policy. Okay, <laughs> so if you look at the history uh, of fiscal stimulus tends to happen in the first two years of the presidential cycle when the executive branch and the legislative branch are both controlled by the same party. Uh, and that's when you get a fiscal reflation boost. Um, uh, Bill Clinton tried it from 92 to 94, was not altogether that successful because his own party didn't end up passing Hillary Care. Uh, but if you go back to that period, um, you know, there was lots of talk about fiscal intervention, fiscal reflation. Uh, and then the next thing you know, the next six years, starting with New Gingrich's contract with America, we just went through six years of fiscal contraction, uh, which if you remember, ended the decade with the U.S. in fiscal surplus. Um, you know, the first uh, uh, couple of years of, um, of Barack Obama, same thing. Uh, president comes in, fiscal interventionist, uh, big ideas. Uh, his first two years, fiscal reflation, and then he runs into the wall called the Tea Party. And the next six years, we saw the deficit GDP ratio uh, go from 8% uh, down to 3%. Uh, and then we can tack on Donald Trump. Donald Trump's first two years, Republican control. Uh, and he, uh, he ends up building this uh, immigration wall around labor that was supposed to be massively wage inflationary. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, and then he's cutting taxes by a trillion dollars at the peak of the business cycle. And we never got the inflation 
Um, you could say that maybe prevented uh, disinflation, but we finished the Trump era with uh, inflation at 2%, the funds rate below 2%, the 10-year Treasury note yield below 2%. And I remember Larry Lindsay going on CNBC after Trump got elected talking about 6% interest rates. Um, and who's smarter than Larry Lindsay? Uh, outside of Larry Summers, not too many people. I don't think we ever saw a six-handle across the yield curve. So I know people like to talk about these things, but inflation is a very complicated process. You talk about fiscal policy. Once again, uh, Trump had his first two years controlling legislative executive branch, and then that's over. And then you had the first two years of Biden. Same thing. The Democrats locked into uh, Georgia. Uh, and then the next thing you know, they've got uh, the Senate and the House. And then we have massive fiscal reflation. It's in the rearview mirror. It's in the rearview mirror. You have no, you, when I tell people that the deficit goes from zero to $2 trillion, is that massively stimulative? Answer, of course it is. I say, well, let's say that it stays at $2 trillion the following year. Oh, yeah, hugely stimulative. And I say, no, do you not see that the deficit has to continue to rise or the primary budget deficit has to continue to rise to add stimulus because we're talking about growth. So it's in the rearview mirror. There is no more mm -hmm. fiscal stimulus. Instead, we should be talking about what the economy is going to look like if the Freedom Caucus ends up forcing the issue of a government shutdown. Uh, and of course, the battleground is for spending cuts. So unless we're going to go, unless you're going to convince me that we're going into the next election and beyond with one party having control of the purse strings of the executive branch, legislative branch, the House is the key, then the fiscal stimulus that you're talking about um, is over, including the impact of the CHIPS Act, incremental impact, the stupidly called any, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, all this stuff is in the rearview mirror. Um, the parts on deglobalization. We're not, we're not really deglobalizing. Uh, it's that we're just shifting the decks. And, and a lot of this is because China just proved to be, proved not to be a reliable um, part of the global supply chain with how they reacted to COVID uh, last year. I mean, shutting down port cities of 30 million because of five COVID cases. And of course, they're caught up in the escalating uh, cold economic war with the US. But you know the the globalization is is um, is is changing. I'm not. I don't think it's going into reverse, or maybe it's partial reversal. If someone can show me their econometric model to show me the basis point impact on inflation per year, I would love to see that. I think it's way overstated. Mm. Uh, the two things that really haven't changed that have been very disinflationary uh, has been advanced technology, and it seems to me, it seems to me as though. Uh, this generative AI boom is probably going to be a game changer in terms of what it means for productivity and what it means for the corporate cost structure. That certainly is not inflationary. And aging demographics has not changed. And that has been at least as big a part of disinflation as everything that Lizanne had mentioned. And there's a big controversial debate, although we've written about it. If you're taking a look at time series of data, cross-sectional data, if you go and take a look at spending patterns as you get older, especially as you break above the age of 65. And that's going to be the dominant growth in the population for the next decade. So people say, well, people leave the labor force that creates labor market tightness and leads to wage inflation. True. But the much bigger impact is the impact on aggregate demand as you get older and your spending patterns, especially on non-essential cyclicals, subsides dramatically. Uh, that's why countries with the most aging population profiles also happen to be the ones with the lowest inflation rates. 
demographics and technology, we know these two things we can rely on to provide a disinflationary future. The globalization, I mean, I mean, who knows? The, the, the one thing I will say is this much. Either you're going to trust monetary policy or not trust monetary policy. They bungled things. They missed transitory. But, you know, we never saw modern monetary theory take hold. I was more worried about inflation when we were having that debate a couple of years ago. And you have Jay Powell has not been comparing himself to McChesney Martin, Arthur Burns, William Miller, thank God, not compared himself to Greenspan or Bernanke or Yellen, compared himself consistently with Paul Volcker. Uh, and so I think that uh, the Fed is just not going to let inflation take hold. They, you know, he had the chance at Jackson Hole to say, you know what, we're contemplating. Remember, years ago, they were talking about inflation averaging. Uh, they're not even going to go there. Uh, he didn't even go towards, will we go to 2 to 3% range? No. Now, I'm not going to say 2% is some magical holy grail number, but for the Fed, that is their target. And they're not backing away. And they're not backing away, even if we get a recession, because it compares himself to Paul Volcker who's renowned as the best central banker who ever lived, despite the fact he put the economy in back-to-back -back recessions in the early 80s to get what he wants. So this whole notion about inflation, uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, the Fed doesn't look like it's, it's going to let it happen. They're putting the inflation genie back into the bottle, and they're not going to let it out. And so I think that uh, to bet against the Fed's resolve is going to be something very, I think that's a very dangerous bet to make. And to me, that's far more important. You see, in the 1970s, the Fed didn't have the 1970s to compare the situation to, but now they do. Now they know the mistakes that they made in the past. So I think they're going to be very late. I think they'll be cutting rates aggressively, but the timing is uncertain and it might not be till the second half of next year before they do. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Do you, Lizanne, do you think that we have to see more significant weakening in the labor market for that to happen? I'm very interested in this, you know, wages as a larger share of GDP than profits. We, we this week are facing a big deadline for the United Auto Workers. We've seen unions pushing through wage increases. How are you thinking about the labor market? Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's set to look like the 1970s in terms of unionization as a share of the workforce, but we are starting to see the muscles getting flexed on the part of labor and, and greater demands coming from what is a less organized labor force, but you're seeing that change. Now, the convergence that has started in terms of profits as a share of GDP and labor as a share of GDP is not significant yet. You're, you're still sort of in that upper range for profits and lower range for labor, but the convergence that has started is worth watching. And, and I think the pressure on profits for that and other reasons uh, in this environment is one that suggests that gives way. And, you know, to, to sort of go on a um, sort of a side note off of what uh, Dave said with regard to uh, deglobalization, um, I agree with that. I, I don't use the term deglobalization. I don't think that that is really the force that we're seeing. I think it's a combination of, you know, onshoring, supply chain diversification, um, regionalization. We're certainly seeing more global factions uh, formed. Um, that's not that's undeniable. That's already happening. And I think it just means an environment where companies in the past had the flexibility to be so cost-minded, 
in terms of acquisition of labor, you know, access to energy as we think of that broadly. And I, I just think that that environment is changing. And I think what the pandemic taught a lot of companies is they want to be not just just-in-time minded, but just in case and availability and security of supplies through the chain is maybe at least as important than the cost structure. And I think that that has the possibility of continuing to compress this profits versus wages uh, dynamic. And, and I just think it's a, a slightly more unstable world. I don't disagree. I think the Fed is going to be much more forceful in not allowing inflation to be let out of the bag again, not pulling an Arthur Burns and declaring victory two key times in the 70s only to see it reignite. And that's what brought Paul Volcker in to have to do what we now say, pull a, pull a Volcker. But I also think that we're because of forces around maybe less flexibility on the part of fiscal authorities, maybe even on the part of monetary authorities, and maybe flexibility isn't the right term, but I think less willingness to go to the zero bound in the case mm -hmm. of the Fed into the negative interest rate bound in the case of global central banks. I think that that experiment had, I think, more negative, possibly unintended consequences. So I just see an environment of less inflation stability. We just had that massive move down in inflation, in interest rates for 30 years or so. And the math is such that, you know, you're not going to repeat that in the, in the next 30 years. And I just think across the spectrum of the economy, inflation, geopolitics, I just ex expect more volatility, more variability. And that just, again, feeds into a different backdrop than the Great Moderation Era. Maggie, can I, can I offer a retort? Please. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, I mean, I was hearing the same thing, for example, I said earlier after Trump got elected in 2016. And uh, if you remember, uh, you know, he was, uh, running against uh, Hillary, uh, who uh, was a pro-free trader. And, and Trump, if you remember, Trump wanted to renegotiate uh, the free trade agreement, the NAFTA. Uh, he ended up building the wall, restricted immigration, uh, raised taxes, lower taxes, a trillion dollars uh, at the peak of the cycle. And if you remember that the unions in 2016 supported Trump, uh, they didn't support the Democratic Party in that national election run. And everybody was talking about populism and reflation under Trump. And, um, well, you know, we, we never got that. And so I hear a lot about the boom in union wage settlements. But it, it's a lagging indicator. It's a lagging indicator. These, and, and believe me, I'm a capitalist. Uh, I'm not pro-union. Uh, I would just say that, look at the reality of the situation. These people were stuck on multi-year contracts, earning 3 4% as inflation surged. Their real wages were crushed. And everybody knows, and the only thing I'll ever agree with Joe Biden on was when he talked about the opportunity the corporate sector took during COVID and after the worst parts of COVID 
to boost their profit margins. We went into this thing with profit margins at an all-time high, and there's nothing the unionized sector could do about it. So all they're doing is marking up for lost time and lost real wages. This is not going to create the conditions. The co corporate sector, if you read beige book after beige book after beige book, and we just got the last one a couple of weeks ago, showing the corporate sector is having increasing difficulty in passing on cost increases because the economy is in complete different shape. There's no longer free money for all, and consumers are changing the way that they shop. There's no capacity for the corporate sector to pass these on. So they either have to cut costs in other areas, boost productivity, or take it on the margin. So if you're going to ask me, out of all the things that have been mentioned, and I guess I'm not really concerned about partial or reshoring in terms of the inflation, I think that'll be basis points per year. It'll be infinitesimal. Uh, and I'm not concerned about wages one iota one iota because they're a lagging indicator. In fact, there's so much academic research showing that it's inflation that feeds into wages, not the other way around. Mm. It only becomes the other way around, Maggie, when the Fed is accommodating the shock, but the Fed's not doing that. So I think we can just put the wage story aside. It is not going to be uh, a pervasive source of inflation down the road. Can the U.S. economy, David, and the global economy handle higher rates. So even if they cut, if we are now looking at rates that stabilize somewhere, you know, three, four percent, two, not back down to that zero percent, some people would say that's returned to what we had before. Can can the U.S. economy and the global economy handle that? Well, we're still going to be faced with the lags of the monetary shock we've had over the course of the past year and a half. Uh, and there's no get it a jail free card from what's already happened. And interest rates hit the economy with lags in both directions. So if the Fed starts to cut rates next year and look, just to get to neutral, they've got to go to two and a half percent of the funds rate. I mean, think about that. Just to get to, this is the tightest monetary policy stance since 1981. And everybody's got inflation on the brain. 1981. The only person calling for recession on Wall Street was my good friend Gary Schilling, who summarily got fired by Don Reagan for doing that. Don Reagan, who then wanted Ronald Reagan to fire Paul Volcker for daring to cause a recession. And he caused I like how you're out I mean, those names. Just reminding everybody. You Dave. can't, well, you, you can't you can't make this stuff up. Of course, it, there is nothing, it's a, as as Albert Einstein famously said, the power of compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And it impacts in both directions. So, of course, if the Fed cuts rates and cuts rates sufficiently and re-steepens the yield curve and we built up enough pent-up demand, of course, 2025 probably sows the seeds for an economic recovery. We're talking about the business cycle. The business cycle, the market cycle, the interest rate cycle, they are all these uh, sine waves, these centrifugal forces that intersect with each other. So, of course, if the Fed eases, eases enough, we're going to blaze the trail for a recovery. But are we putting, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? The recession will come first, and then we'll talk about the recovery once the Fed responds to the recession pressures. I want to bring a question in, and then I want to hear where you both think opportunity is. Uh, we have a question for you, Lizanne. Does the presidential election in autumn 2024 reduce the probability of a large decline in equity prices uh, as the main interest of the government is to present a good world before the election date. I mean, I think they're saying do they, they want to make sure everyone's feeling good about their. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the tie into the four year presidential cycle. And typically the third year, 
being the best in a presidential cycle. But, uh, you know, I, I look at seasonals like that, like anybody else does, but I certainly wouldn't bank everything on that on an every year, every cycle basis, because there are always outliers. It's also the case that you can have a strong year in the lead-in year, the third year, but if you've gotten a recession that is in the actual election year, the incumbent doesn't win. So there's so many forces at play that I think there's too many people that just sort of share a simplistic answer. They do it either based on historical cycles or sadly in many cases via you know expressing a political view and then saying this is going to happen or this isn't going to happen i i try to frame things based on everything going on at the time with a you know hefty dose of what's happened in history so you know that that's a the short answer is uh i don't know uh, you know one thing i will say um to the the topic we were discussing just before this as it relates to the election year is that I, I agree that the Fed probably will have impetus at some point to, to start cutting rates. But the fact that embedded in expectations right now is still four rate cuts next year happening in the beginning part of the year, not the latter part of the year, I just don't see an environment where inflation hasn't gotten yet to the Fed's target. The labor market, although plenty of cracks have appeared, is not imploding. And you've got a you know three eight on the unemployment rate. Um, the idea that from a Fed that has been pounding the table on we want to once we get to the terminal rate, our inclination is to stay there until we're pretty sure that they don't use this, this terminology. We you know we've slayed the inflation dragon. I think rate cuts are a possibility, but not absent deterioration in the labor market, the idea that, oh, maybe there's in the mind, they'll say, I know, you know, we're, we're comfortable now with three to four, even if they don't change their target. Unemployment rate is not going up. That may be a perfectly legitimate scenario for the pause to persist. It doesn't really provide a green light for the Fed moving so quickly to rate cuts. So I, I, to, to people who say, you know, rate cuts are coming next year. That's going to be incredibly bullish. I, I often think, boy, be careful what you wish for, because the conditions that would cause the Fed in short order to pivot, not just to pause, but to pivot, um, those are probably recession type conditions. Yeah, the bad news is bad news in that case. Um, David, do you have a, do, are you is there a timing for rate cuts that you have in mind? Do you think it's sometime next year? Well, look, this. This Fed is a different Fed uh, than we've seen before. And he's compared himself to Paul Volcker and uh, nobody else. Uh, and so I think the Fed's uh, pain threshold is going to be higher than it was under, say, uh, you know, Greenspan or, or Bernanke. Uh, so the timing is hard to figure out right now. Uh, I Let think me put it this way. Is, is, uh, do you share Lizanne's concern that the market is too aggressive in what they're expecting? No, no, no. I, I think that, uh, look, the Fed, look, the Fed has been barking and barking and barking about higher for longer. That's what they want us to believe. Okay. They also want to believe in transitory like two years ago. <laughs> and, and I think that uh, we want to fade, we want the fade transitory. And I think we want to fade higher for longer. That's what they want us to believe. 
So 50 basis points of those rate cuts for next year in the past couple of months have been priced out. And that's how we ended up from three and three quarters in the 10 year note to 4.3. It's all been a reset of Fed expectations that showed up in the term premium. But I think that um, what's going to happen is this. And once again, the San Fran Fed laid it out for us. I said they produced the best research. Uh, and I said that for a long time. Just a few weeks ago, they updated uh, their report on where they see the rental components of the CPI. And here's the reality. We can talk about energy if you want. We can talk about food. We can talk about healthcare. Nothing is more important than the 33% share of the CPI that's in the rental measures and 40% of the core is in the rental measures. So here's the deal. If you get the rental measures right, you're going to get headline inflation and core inflation right. So we, we, they, they did all this re-estimation of what happens. Of course, there's these three-year distributive lags in the rental component. So they still include that the high leasing rates when there was no building activity going on in the apartment sector. They're still included in the data, but they're gradually falling out. And what lies ahead is the fact that we know in real time from the high frequency data that real-time rents sequentially and year-over-year are actually deflating. But they've yet to forcefully show up in the CPI numbers. So the San Fran Fed, they, they, they laid it out on a silver platter for us. They said that by this time next year, that the year-over-year -year trend in the one-third of the index called rents, OER and actual rents, are going to be flat to negative. Well, holy disinflation, Batman. They just told us that you can lop. We don't know what the rest is going to be doing, what assumptions you want to make about food and energy and autos and clothing and apparel and everything else. Let's just say that we just say the trend will, in those areas will remain the same. And of course, if you go into recession, the demand in those areas will go down and they'll disinflate. But they just told us that we can just lop off three percentage points off the headline inflation rate just from this impact alone. So you're talking about headline and core inflation. Headline inflation going well below 1%, probably half of 1%, core going two or below 1% in the next year. So there's not a snowball's chance in hell that even the most ardent hawk on the Fed is going to allow real rates to go up that high in the context of an economy that we know is going to be slowing down. Whether it contracts or not, we'll see. But whatever happens, the output gap is going to be expanding. It should be expanding in anybody's forecast. And they will be cutting rates. The question is, by how much? Same before, just to get to neutral. And nobody knows where neutral is, but the Fed's telling us it hasn't moved during COVID. There's a big debate. John Williams in the camp where our star is still going down. Let's just say it's 2.5%. Just to eliminate the excessive monetary restraint, they got to cut rates 300 basis points. And then what we know from history, what we know from history is that in recessions, the Fed cuts the funds rate 500 basis points to a T. The only reason they couldn't do it in the last recession is because the starting point was below 2%. So then QE, expanded QE becomes a synthetic way for the Fed to get rates down to zero or even negative. So I would say that if you have a recession view, which I do, I think history will, re will repeat itself because it so often does. And I think that we will head back down to the zero bound. And everybody who says that's not going to happen will be begging for it because it will happen under a completely different set of economic inflation conditions that we have in our hands today. So I think the Fed will be late because they're always late in both directions. And then they're going to cut hard, as they always do, including Paul Volcker. Remember, he compares, Paul compares him to Paul Volcker. 
Paul Volcker was not only the greatest inflation dragon slayer of all time, Maggie, he was the greatest interest rate slayer of all time. Nobody in history cut rates as aggressively as Paul Volcker did from the early to the mid-1980s to the time that he left office in 1986. So, yeah, I think rates will come down, come down hard. Lizanne, where do you see opportunity as you look out? Since we do have this sort of, you know, uncertainty and this divergence of opinion, what, what, how are you considering this? So I, th I think, you know, macro will continue to be uh, a driver more than just on the margin. I think dispersion um, among equities is likely to stay wider. As I touched on before, I think the return of the risk-free rate and the uh, sort of bringing back of, of price discovery is such that factor oriented investing, investing based on specific factors and characteristics probably makes more sense than some of the broader blanket kind of growth versus value uh, sector calls. In fact, leadership in the last, uh, call it year and a half or so, has been more consistent at the factor level than has been at things like the sector level. And for now, we're, given where we are in the cycle, we've been emphasizing quality. Um, so a quality wrapper is actually a wrapper around factors that both have growth characteristics and value characteristics. So things like um, you know, high interest coverage tied into stronger balance sheet with, with higher cash flow and lower debt, but you don't want to sacrifice the growth side to look for positive earnings revisions, positive earnings surprise. So for now, you want to stay up in quality. There, there are times when you start to anticipate a turn back up in the economy when you exit the compression cycle and you go into the uh, improvement, the recovery cycle, where you actually benefit from maybe going down the quality spectrum, because that's where a lot of the leverage is to that upturn in the economy. That's what happened when we got the vaccine news. And you, you benefited by going down quality because that's where you got the significant pickup levered to the improvement in the economy. Um, maybe obvious, I don't think we're there yet. So for now, and my colleague, Kathy Jones, on the fixed income side, their group has also been emphasizing staying up in quality. So this is both a sort of an equity view at this point and a fixed income view. Yeah, that's interesting. Someone asking, uh, do you um, think the 10-year will make a new cycle high? And how important is that into how you're thinking about stock performance? We so our fixed income group thinks that we're we're pretty close to the the high in the cycle. I, it wouldn't surprise me to see a little bit more of a of a move up. I, I think there's a lot of of you know volatility in the fixed income market. I mean, the move index, although down from the highs, has been off the charts. So I think some of the swings can be exacerbated simply by positioning and more speculative money playing around in the uh, in the yield space than has been the case in the past. But I, I think the, the, the fundamentals that typically drive yields don't suggest major upside from here, if anything, you know, starting to see a move down at some point, not too far in the future. Uh, David, some, someone uh, writing in my question for David would be, uh, what would you answer someone whose opinion is that the equity markets played the recession already in 2022? They priced it in when we had that big sell-off. Well, uh, I think that uh, it would the, the lags would be really, really bizarre because although the stock market is a leading indicator, uh, 
it doesn't lead by like two years. And in fact, the signal from the stock market to the economy is shortened over time to three to six months. So I think that um, if that was the case, if the, if the answer, if the question had validity, I'd say, well, we would have seen the recession already. Uh, but I don't think the recession has started. I mean, there's been, you can, you can look at some indicators. I don't think the recession has started yet. So it'd be very weird to say that the stock market priced in something that would have happened so long after the event. Uh, I think that what happened was that the stock market initially corrected with a reset towards a new interest rate environment, um, but didn't really price in the profits recession. I don't think that's happened. So let's talk about what we have on our hands right now. The recession has not started yet. I, I, would, I would appreciate that comment if it already started. We'd be talking about a new bull market. Uh, the new bull market starts when the Fed has cut rates for 70% into the, um, the uh, Fed easing cycle, which hasn't started yet. And we're 70% of the way into the recession when the market bottoms. And the yield curve is positively sloped to stands by 140 basis points. And the equity risk premium is 400 basis points, not 100. So the math isn't working for you. So I would say that let's take a look and see where we are right now. Right now, and Morgan, uh, JP, JP Morgan did some nifty research showing that the equity market is priced uh, less than 20% right now for a recession. Uh, the market for corporate credit is priced less than 10% for a recession. So everybody... Everybody in the economics community, maybe except for me, uh, and I guess maybe Lacey Hunt and Gary Schilling, everybody has thrown out the recession view and thrown caution to the wind, and so, so, and so have the markets. So no, I would say the market initially just reset to higher rates, did not reset to what the higher rates are going to do to the economy in the next 12 to 24 months. That's the difference. Hey, Maggie, can I add something sure. um, with regard to sort of leads and lags and, and Fed policy? It's not... It's not a retort or a counter to what David said because he was talking about the, the nature of the market versus uh, recessions. But it, it made me think of, of something. I actually wrote a, an op-ed in the, not op-ed, which is a column in the FT a while ago about this. Um, if you look at all, I think it's 14 cycles, rate hiking cycles in the history of the, the Fed as we know it, and you go to the point where they stopped, where they were done raising interest rates. And then you look at the equity market performance over the next six months, over the next 12 months, you can draw an average and you can talk about the averages. On average, you know, the market does this, but there is not a more perfect example of analysis of an average leads to average analysis than that. First of all, you're talking 14 occurrences. That's a relatively small sample size. The range is massive. We have had six months later, a spread of minus, and I'm rounding, minus 20 to plus 20 in terms of percentage move by the S&P. You go a year out, the range is minus 30 to plus 30. So it points out that there are so many forces that impact how the market behaves. And I think too often there's a, a and I can't tell you how many times I've seen the, the word typical use, like the typical performance of the stock market. And I think by virtue of a small sample size and a wide range, the average actually doesn't, isn't the path resembling any individual experience because the range is so wide. So there really isn't anything that is typical. We can talk averages, 
but you have to be really careful to understand in history, there's a wide range around those. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Lizanne. And, and I'm sure this gets amplified in the world of social media and Twitter that we live in that, you know, suddenly gets reduced to a narrative um, and then extrapolate from there. Uh, David, I, I asked Lizanne this, um, where do you see the opportunity given your outlook? Well, I think that um, we're not escaping uh, this interest rate shock without uh, an economic recession, a classic NBER recession. And to say that it's not going to happen because it hasn't happened is like, uh, as I sit here in Toronto in December, it's like saying in December to people, it didn't snow in Toronto, therefore there's no winter. And it's just the most ludicrous thing to say that we have this monetary shock and there's not going to be repercussions. Uh, and so I think we're going to have a recession and uh, there's no risk asset class right now that's priced for it. I would say that we were much closer to being priced for it in, in last October, even though I would argue that we still weren't fully priced for it. Uh, and now we're priced for not just a soft landing, but we're either priced for some reacceleration that it's hard to know where that exogenous positive shock is going to provide that or price somehow for this soft landing, perfect slow, slow economic growth with no variability uh, to perpetuity. And uh, I don't believe in fairy tales. So uh, I'm bearish on equities. Uh, and if I was gonna be, if I had to be long, if I had to be in the equity market, I'd wanna be very uh, concentrated on what is the beta of the portfolio? What's my uh, exposure to cyclicality? Uh, so I basically would be confined to healthcare staples, uh, utilities. I think you can pick away at telecom pipelines. So I'm not saying be zero weighted in equities. I, in my own personal portfolio, I'm down at 20% equities. I'm not zero, but it's the lowest weighting I've had since 2007. Take that for whatever, whatever it's worth. I think that uh, I want to buy what's out of favor, what's detested, what's already gone through a huge fundamental bear market that always rallies uh, in a recession and with inflation coming down. Uh, so I like uh, the treasury market. Uh, we're only in an inverted yield curve 15% of the time. This is abnormal. Uh, time value of money dictates that we should be in a positive yield curve environment, but when we're not there 15% of the time, it's because the Fed is tightening policy excessively. And in fact, the only three times historically that we did not have a recession in a Fed tightening cycle was in the mid 60s, mid 80s, and mid 90s. Of course, mid-90s was when Alan Greenspan developed the moniker, the maestro, but you see the Fed stopped tightening once the yield curve flattened. Mm. Uh, this Fed kept on tightening into the inversion. And the, my, my, the forecast that worked out the best this year is when I said, when the yield curve inverted last summer, I said, watch every Tom, Dick, and Harriet on Wall Street uh, dismiss the yield curve as a relic of the past because they always do. You see, for these people, the yield curve only works when the Fed's cutting rates and steepening the curve. When they're raising rates and burning the curve, it's like, shh, shh, forget the yield curve. The yield curve is just a signal from the bond market that we're going to have a recession, that the Fed's over-tightened, and it's a matter of just uh, timing. Admittedly, I think it's going to happen in the next 12 months. The uh, the New York Fed's survey, the New York Fed's model is 95%. Yan Hatsi's is 15%, New York Fed's 95%. Yan Hatsi's is 15%, and everybody's latching onto that because, uh, you know, who's better than Goldman Sachs? And the... The Cleveland Fed is at 75% recession odds. Nothing's priced for a recession. Uh, 
the, the, um, it's, so it's tricky with the timing of the bond market now. And I'm just going to say, I, my 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 biggest trade is the is the long bond. Sorry, what was the last question? Well, the timing's been tricky though because people have been do, putting that bond trade on, but it's been too early. Well, I know it's been too early, but the problem is that when you go into recession, it's better too early than too late because by the time it's by the time it's too late, your head's been sliced off. You know, this is the same conversation we're having in 07. Where's this recession? Where I mean, bond yield surged into the summer of 07. The stock market, the S&P 500 peaked on October 9th of 07. That day at 1565, I'm giving a presentation at the at the Fed in Washington. And at the end of it, it was around five o'clock. They said, Rosenberg, do you know the stock market just hit an all-time high today? You're talking about a recession. Recession started in December of 07. And you had people like Ed Hyman, for example, who really represented the consensus of economics thinking was soft landing right through the first half of 2008. We didn't know till really people started calling for recession once the recession caused the next leg, which was the crisis, the financial crisis. So I understand the, the timing is tricky. You know what? Economists are not going to give you timing. It's not, it's not our craft. You want timing, mm -hmm. go speak to a technical analyst and they'll show you the ABC waves and they'll show you the 10-day the moving average against the 50-day. All I'm saying is that it's out there. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to be a 2026, 2027 story. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is out in the next five years. Yeah. In, in 07, beginning of 07, I understand that I was early, early, early. But I'm going to tell you something, okay, Maggie, for my own personal career, by 2008, nobody was saying I was crazy early anymore. And all the people calling me a skunk at the picnic on the sales desk couldn't wait to take me out to see their clients. I can't right? believe anybody called you a skunk, David. I find that hard to believe. Um, we're almost out of time, Lizanne. Um, just want to ask you um, any feeling about U.S. versus the rest of the world? You know, we have seen on an equal weighted basis non-U.S. stocks performing better than U.S. stocks. There's been such a cap bias in the U.S. indexes, which I, I'd like to see uh, ease. I, I think we could benefit from some broadening out and uh, a moving down in performance and seeing equal weight within our market perform better. That has not been the case, but that's one of the things that I'm looking for. But if you're an active investor and you're more focused on sort of equal weight conceptually, non-US has done well relative to US this year. All right. We, we have to leave it there. <clears throat> I can't believe we just flew by with all that time, but it was fantastic to catch up with both of you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and what's been a really tricky macro time for everyone. Thank you. Thank you. All right, next up in the series, a fantastic interview with Larry McDonald and Luke Groman. You are not going to want to miss that. And of course, we'll be back with the Daily Briefing at 4 p.m. Hope to see you then. Thanks, everybody. Take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best brightest and biggest names in finance.